Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Recorded at the PW offices in New York City, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I am also co-editor of PW Comics World, as well as the graphic novels review editor at Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons, podcast producer. Uh, and don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on iTunes, and we're on social media at Facebook.com slash PW Comics World, and at PW Comics World on Twitter. This week on More to Come, uh, special edition and con news. Um... Brian Hibbs and the BookScan Report. Uh, Tezuka goes digital and Viz goes to India. Guardians of the Galaxy and the Fantastic Four uh, is casted. Let's get right to it. Uh, a new show at Javits. Yeah, special edition New York comic. Uh, special edition New York City. Uh, put on by Reed Pop, the same outfit that puts mm-hmm. on New York Comic Con, the fall extravaganza. Now they're having a show Father's Day weekend here, ah, yeah. June 14th through 15th, at uh, the Javits Center. And it will only take place in the uh, shed, the North Hall. Yeah, Javits uh, North, I Javits think they call North, it. Javits North, mm-hmm. which is a temporary mm-hmm. uh, structure that was built during construction that's proven to be more popular People than the actual love Javits it. Yes, Center. It's actually a lot more fun. It has to go toilets, <laughs> ba- electrical outlets. Not uh, to mention natural light. Natural yes. light, it's yeah. It's actually a gorgeous space. <laughs> I know. Are you sure it's temporary? I hope it's not temporary. Well, it's meant to be temporary. I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Actually, it's funny. uh, uh, A friend of the show and my wife, uh, Jody Calkin, Borough of Manhattan Community College, actually has had its graduation ceremonies in there as well. Uh, But uh, all comics all the time. So we're seeing now, uh, this is interesting. Is there some chance that... You know, one of the other mega cons would think about starting a show that would focus more uh, away well, from the you know. I think what's really media partners. But I think what's really sad about this show is that it's the same date as two other local shows, which were announced well ahead of it. That oh. actually wait, we're wait, we're going focusing. back to Con Wars yeah, we again. Are, well, we're kind of going back to Con Wars. I mean, they're saying that they couldn't change the date, and it was the only date they had, and. You know, I, I mean, I dug into this a little bit, and, and you, you know, we all know and work with the Reed Pop folks, and I, yeah. I don't think there's a Blofeld no, there who's sitting no, in his just, airy just planning to put just other cons no, out of two business. Two cons, no, one and weekend. they have shown, I mean, Lance and Reed Pop have shown the ability to adjust if they cause problems. They've moved the dates of shows before when, they yes, it, was, they have. when it was causing they problems. They have, and they are very so, sensitive to it. So, I mean, maybe they thought these shows were just too small to, to bother with. One's in Long Island, one's in Westchester. And uh, both, well, uh, the Eternal Con and uh, New York Comic Fest. And I think uh, one of them was uh, is a little bit more of a wide-scale kind of con for Long Island, which is an underserved area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has kind of costume contests and wrestlers and some nerd liberties will be there in a movie mm-hmm. festival. So it's a little bit more of a full-surface con. Uh, whereas New York Comics Fest was more of a just pure comics show uh, held in Westchester by the same people who put on the Asbury Park Comic Con. Well, it is Westchester, so it's technically speaking not here. Well, you know, I think what'll be interesting about New York uh, Special Edition is that it's it's not cheap to go to. It's no. $30 a day. Now, all right, granted, I haven't actually bought a ticket to go to a Comic Con in a long time, <laughs> so I can't even comment on that. Uh, it does seem like a lot of money to me, though. Well, it, it's... It seems like a, a normal price for a large full-service con. Right. But whether they will be giving you the large full-service con experience, I do not well, know. Well, what also interested me is that they are offering VIP tickets, which for $150, which get you into the room early and 
like it had some other kind of nebulous benefits mm. to it. So um, I know I think that's just the rich nerd trap. Yeah, yeah it sounds like what it is. I mean, yeah. I, you know, when I talked with Lance, he said <laughs> his whole thing was that we, we wanted to be affordable. Now, he, at the time I talked to him, he wasn't giving up on what the prices were going to be. Uh, you know, personally, I don't think uh, $30 is overwhelming. No, that's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, it, it would make me basically go one day. Yeah. Uh, if indeed I didn't, get, it very much feels like a one day con. To either day, like, <laughs> but uh, you know, and is there going to be programming other than just the hall? That's what I don't know, uh, Heidi. Do you have any more information about, about is there what additional programming besides? Well, there will be programming. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So, well, you know, uh, but um, you know what it actually is. There will be some publishers who will be available. Uh, there are. I'm trying to. I'm trying to look up their website right well, now. Is, is there going to be any have. food? There's no no place to eat in Well, there. I mean, oh, that's yeah. a traditional problem with. Um, well, that's Javits cons. Well, that's Javits in general. But at least you can get bad food in the rest of the, of the, of the uh, center. There's nothing back there. Well, I guess you just have to go into the rest of the center. Or, uh, you know, maybe they'll yeah. have like a hot maybe dog cart. Yeah, they probably will. They'll have something portable maybe, maybe they'll, and yet inedible. Uh, right. Maybe the they'll purchase. be selling uh, $6 ice cream again. <laughs> I well, doubt it. I think for most people, I mean, this is they've already announced the guest list that will include a lot of, uh, you know, popular writers and artists uh, like Alex Maleev and Joe Harris and... Hey, are uh, we going to have a presence at this con? I mean, do, I mean, I know well, we get a table at New York Comic Con. Do we get one there? Or? Well, you know, well, we need to look we into need to that. figure out that. We but I mean, I already had promised that I was going to go to one of the other shows. I already promised I was going to go to Eternal Con. So um, you know, and I feel kind of uh, badly about abandoning a prior commitment because well, of this show. No, so. yeah, she plans to abandon. The- no, no, I would. I honestly, I I think that it was really unfortunate that the dates collide like yes, this. Well, yeah. but are you I, scheduled I, I for both days of a Colonel Con? Well, uh, we'll see. I mean, I I might go for one day to special edition, but um, you know, I I, I mean, it, I don't think there's too much that's groundbreaking about special no. edition, really. No, I mean, no. it's kind of like just a whole bunch of comic book artists yeah. sitting behind tables. Signing comic books in New York City, so not, but it's not, not most, exactly groundbreaking. But it it is interesting to see uh, you know uh, an outfit like Reed Exhibitions uh, doing a show this scale. I mean that's kind of unusual, and it's it seems to point to this what's happening in other places around the country. Well, you know, I mean to be fair, we're talking about this like it's this tiny tiny show that they're making, but this hall you have to understand, yeah. listeners who haven't been well, there, is a huge yeah, hall. it's eighty thousand square feet. Yeah, but, and I mean, yeah, but which for is, a Reed exhibition, which is as big as the first, <laughs> the first New York Comic Con, probably was bigger. Held in a hall, probably bigger. Yes, I think exactly. we, I think it was only about twenty thousand square. By feet. By the way, the one hundred dollar special edition uh, NYC VIP packages are already sold out. Just FYI. Well, so. there you go. Apparently, the so rich nerd trap worked. The rich nerd there's trap, clearly yes. demand. Yeah. So. But, I mean, as we've been talking about, this is only the tip of the iceberg in con wars and con this and con that. Uh, there was there was a real con war last week with the Denver Comic Con. Oh, yeah. This is where uh, confusing one of the and co-founders published an open yeah. letter on about how, the, basically, he established this. Denver Comic Con as part of a larger nonprofit called Comic Book Classroom, where it would be the funding mechanism for a nonprofit that would offer educational programs about comics to young people. 
Uh, and uh, last year, as I think I'm sure we, we talked about here on More to Come, the Denver Comic-Con was one of the huge success stories. Well, the huge stories of con year, as it drew some 60,000 people, which is like twice what it did the year before. And there were horrible line jabs. People stood outside for hours and hours. Some of them never got in. So it was really not the best-run show. Yeah. But despite that, everybody seems to want to claim <laughs> they started it. They own <laughs> yes. it. So there was a conflict between... I'm a founder. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yeah. Well, it seems a little bit strange. I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on there that we as observers are probably not quite seeing. Yeah. But uh, anyway, after LaGreca, who definitely did co-found the yeah. show, I mean, I have to say, I, I mean, he's been talking about it to me and to many other people for years. So, But then there seemed to be the this other group that who he admits to working with, yes. who he doesn't necessarily include as one of the founders or co-founders well, and they seem to have a very different look at that well, the woman that is uh, essentially leading the alternative yes. group or the counter group the, the, well, well they're on the board I they're, mean, they're, they're, yes they're Kate, a part Kate, of the board what were you gonna yeah. say? okay I was going to say to, to clarify things here um, Charlie LaGreca and his partner whose name escapes me at this moment uh, came up with the idea right and okay. then they decided that they needed more people to help them run right. this con. So they brought more people in to form the board right. of the convention. Right. Now, for reasons which Heidi can explain better than I can, the board is now claiming that he's not a member of the board and they don't want anything to do with him. Um, and so even though he is the undisputed, an undisputed founder, he is out. Well, and he well feels that I don't the think they're claiming... Well, go on, go on. The, I'm sorry, yeah. Well, they're not claiming he has nothing to do with the con. They're just... Saying saying that he's he got not on the board. You know what? This became a he said, she said very, yeah. very quickly. Yeah. But, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't but, know. I mean, yeah. I but know But the Charlie. real question yeah. is this nonprofit, is it going to be funding any of these activities that right. they originally started the convention right. to fund? And they put out a infographic <laughs> yes <laughs> showing that they had spent some money but I mean you know it's an infographic mm. uh, there was a nonprofit. you have to file tax forms which are public so people can check this out pretty easily hey, and, and you know after uh, there was going to be a public rally to save Denver Comic Con and then there was a press release from the people who were actually running the show that said Denver Comic Con does doesn't not need, need saving, saving. Yes, yes. that was uh you know, not the most persuasively written piece of no. PR that I've ever read in my life. But you know what? Then after all this playing it out in public, uh, the two decided to, the two sides decided to meet in private and actually well, there's a out. There's a concept. Yeah. <laughs> well, my understanding is this, what we have here is a failure to c- communicate, yeah, clearly. to say the least. So, um... Well, so, yeah. either that or it was a, let's not get further embarrassed. Right. But you know what? The main the main, um, main factor in all this, I think, was on that infographic, which said that between all of it, the gross revenue of Comic Book Classroom, under which was Denver Comic Con, was $1.3 million. So, you know, we're not talking about chump change here. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're not. So, I mean, that's a lot of money to squabble over. Let's put it that way. And uh, I think that's why everybody, you know, success is, uh, you know, failure is an orphan and success has a board and co-founders. Yeah, a and, warring board and co-founders yeah, usually. And, and all these different things. You know, on a related note, there was a, just this week, there was a small con planned in South Bend, Indiana that has been canceled because it turned out that they had put on a Kickstarter to raise funds to put on this show. And uh, then the people who were running the Kickstarter just went off and with the money. <laughs> well, an old story. Uh, an old, an old, old story. Yes, yes. Old but true. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking at this South Bend 
show. Uh, the Kickstarter was for $2,000, and it raised $4,000. So, you know, we're, here we're not exactly talking <laughs> more than, you know, the price of a few hearty meals, uh, you know, for a group. So, um, you know, uh, but there's clearly big money to be made yeah. running cons. And uh, Rob Salkowitz, actually a friend of the, the show, uh, had a, uh, he said he had seen some, some information that suggested that the gross revenue of Comic-Cons last year was $600 million. So it's quite a bit of money. Uh, uh, boy, that's I'd actually so. more than in the uh, entire graphic novel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this that's the comic true. Chain yeah. put together, so. Well, the, the, uh, the, the appearance and programming business is doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so sure. uh, anyway, more to come. And, and you know, I've been hearing uh, a lot more. I, mean, I should look into this, but the, supposedly there's a con war in Malta, which is <laughs> interesting. Interesting, okay. which is about the size of this office. But uh, yeah, there's two different comic cons there, and I, I guess they have a little bit of a con wars going and on. And Malta's so. just not big enough for the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> right, apparently not. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, more to come. All right. Yes, we'll revisit that. All right. Um, Brian Hibbs' annual report on the book scan numbers. Well, yeah, it's not really. It's a, it's a leak. He actually gets the year-end graphic novel sales and uh, leaks it to all of us for our own interest and purposes. And, um, I'm always interested how he does that. I mean, book scan usually goes completely ape whatever. Well, I guess they're just used when, to it. When their numbers are, are released in any way. But yeah. there you go. Well, good for Brian. I mean, yeah, he's got yeah. a, away with it so far. The so. dude is bulletproof. Yeah. Um, but uh, he does come up with uh, a really detailed account of the year. Yeah. And, I mean, not too many surprises. Dork Diaries is on top again, uh, as it has been. For... As is Walking Dead. Right. And, I mean, the book skin itself has a lot of um, has a, has many miscategorizations on there. So, like, Wimpy Kid is not included, but uh, but Dork Diaries is, yeah. and as we know, they're both the same format, which is whatever it is. And uh, so, and, and but you know, Brian had to purposely go in and add some books like Mouse and Persepolis, which are not put under the mm-hmm. graphic novel. A listing on Bookscan, but uh, but all in all, it's yeah. But you know, all in all, like the units are up, dollars are up, and and not only that, this is the first year for well, the category of the big picture for the top seven hundred and fifty graphic novels. So this is not counting every graphic novel ever on Bookscan, but for this is uh, the first year. It's ninety six million dollars and change, and it is the first year since um, the high in two thousand eight. To have reached that height, right? So it's, it's, and it's the, the best so it's year the second since biggest then. year, second, second biggest, biggest year total since they started doing it, and um, by far the biggest year since the crash. Right, right. And the crash would be like to, what, the, when the end of two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, yeah. when we saw manga begin to slide yeah. and border, and, and well, and the, economy and the entire as a whole. economy basically yeah, slides. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so that's great. You know, yeah. I mean, I think really what. Uh, uh, the takeaway from this is kids' comics are very, very popular. Um, uh, but, zombie comics are very, you know, uh, also um, Walking Dead did incredible on this list. Uh, you know, what I really would like to do is dig down on this. And I, what I like to do every year is take it and do a uh, best, uh, like, top ten by publisher. Because I think that really reveals quite, a, I, quite a bit. One thing I just said that is, is amazing. I'm, it's not amazing that Walking Dead is on here. But it, what is amazing at the, the Walking Dead compendium. Yeah. You know, that's a $60 book that weighs as much as this table. Yeah. And what, he's got 95,000 copies of yeah. that. Yeah, so there. it's a $60 book it's at $95,000. So probably they are, you know, getting about 
let's say three quarters of that. So let's say Robert Kirkman and Charlie Adlard get $45. So 45 times 100,000 carry the 10. So, you know, Robert Kirkman is uh, pretty much a millionaire even before the TV show revenue. Yeah, and that's is, not counting all the other yeah. volumes. <laughs> yeah, that's that not counting all the like other crazy. volumes. Well, you know, also. but also way up toward the top and points to him is our uh, very own uh, favorite on... Um, on Star Wars Jedi Academy. Yeah. The same people yes. who brought you, you know, Darth Vader and Son. Yeah, which uh, actually it's not. It's not. This is a scholastic book. It's a kid's book, whereas the other, uh, Darth Vader says from Chronicle, but Jeffrey Brown is the creator of both. Yeah, uh, I meant the same guy, not yeah, the same Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jedi Academy is another one of these kind of hybrid-y, mm. kind of, you know, hybrid graphic novels. Uh, but, I mean, the minute I saw it, I was like, oh my God, children are going to love this. Um, Drama <laughs> comes in at yes. number... Yeah, uh, what is it? Number... Uh, Number six, six of the top number 20. Six. So Over 80,000 copies yeah. sold. And these numbers are low, as we like to say. Because right, because they're, they're not everything. They're just yeah. places that are running book scans. Yes, right. exactly. Which accounts for yeah, uh, 65, 70% and, of the, the trade yeah. book market. And Big Nate is on there. And no there. libraries. Yeah. Yeah. Big Nate is on there, which Several is times. a uh, huge... Uh, uh, Pier- Lincoln Pierce is the creator yeah, of that. Is yeah, a big, published by Andrews McNeil. Yeah, so uh, you know Naruto and um, Attack on Titan. Attack on Titan. Mm-hmm. Iron. They're representing uh, the the uh, manga side of things. Le- Lego Ninjago is That's in there. That's right. The paper cuts uh, makes yeah, it. Yeah, but I, represent. I, I, I mean, really, what is a uh, you know Sea of Monsters? Uh, Percy Jackson, which is a graphic novel oh, yeah. adaptation. I mean, there's not too many of these in the past. We saw quite a few of these kind of graphic novel adaptations of literary mm. works. Um, not as many. You know, the biggest takeaway for me on all of this is, as it is almost every year, is just how crappy Marvel did. And they are like the number seven publisher, uh, as, as uh, they just Hibbs don't do had books, figured yeah. out. And they just are so bad at doing books. Even they when, didn't crack the top 20. Yeah, yeah that, well, they didn't crack, I don't think it's like the top 40. I mean, I think their number one book here is, uh, uh, well, Hawkeye did well. Actually, for them, which my life is a weapon, which is the first book of the acclaimed yeah. fraction. That's like in the top twenty-five, or t- no, it's in the top forty. I'm looking at it, but uh, I mean, there that that is just as well as you know, Amulet book one by Kazu Kibuishi or Building mm-hmm. Stories or uh, March. March did better than that, you know, which is great. But you know, how could Marvel continue to just do so bad with the best? What could be the best backlist in comics? It's very, very frustrating. I mean, I really don't think they do very well at all at capitalizing on their movies. No, they don't. They don't. Yeah. And um, and uh, on a subject that we will talk about later, um, they've got a Guardians of the Galaxy. They've got yeah. that'll be a test case. That yeah. and Winter Soldier, because in both of those cases, they have a very obvious volume that they can put on the table that will be exactly what they're looking for. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, You know, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, is absolutely based, no question, on the Ed Ed Brubaker, uh, and I forget the name of the artist, but that run. And um, not I, only the run, but there's a specific volume you yeah, can well, point you to. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, Ed Brubaker was just complaining on Twitter today that the book was been out of print, and just a new edition just came out today. Although it does have a movie, uh, it does Oof. have a movie cover. It does have a photo. Well, at cover least on it. finally book, it's back right, in print. But, but I'm just what saying, was it doing not in print right, all along? Because normally the movie comes out, I think, in April. Yeah, uh, and you're supposed to have these things out uh, on the table at least you know three months ahead of time. So Marvel just barely got it. Yeah, and what's more, I mean, the buzz for Winter Soldier started after Avengers came out. Yeah. Like, for the last 
yeah, I've been hearing about people being like, oh, Winter Soldier. Oh, what's that storyline? Oh, I want to read it. Gosh, I can't find it. And I'm like, it's lost. Yeah, it's lost money. It's, it's it, just money it's flushed not, down the toilet. You know, it's like Marvel has its own little weird practices that for this reason that they don't like to carry back stocks. They don't like to have a back. But list. you think they don't like that, inventory. But you know, what's really sad about this is not that Marvel doesn't give a flying, you know, yeah. free for all about making this money. It's that it's money taken out of the hands of, of comics retailers. It's, and yeah. it's, it's out of the hands of comics yeah. retailers and it's out of the hands of their, their creators. Yeah. Because frankly, um, because of their bad backlist, um, a creator like Brubaker, who creates things that fans still want to read mm-hmm. 10 years later, yeah. is doing approximately equally as somebody who did a run that uh, did not age as well that people are not interested in anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's, a real, it's a real shame. They're and, taking uh, money out of their creators' pockets, they are. And, and it I, really makes no sense. Yeah. And it would really, if there's one, we say this every year, but... There's one thing you could do that would really shore up the comics industry. It would be improving Marvel's backlist. But well, I mean, anyway, dream thing, on. The thing is, you know, it, Disney doesn't like backlists either. Unfortunately, but, but I will so. say this: the funny thing is that they could even just do what Warner Brothers does with their DVDs, and for the things that are less popular to keep in back stock, to just have a website where they'll just print it on demand for you. Yeah, like. It's very strange. I mean, in conventional publishing, the backlist is the bedrock of everything yeah. you do. And I can understand you don't want to have an extensive backlist lot, but for the things that are like that people are really interested in now, that have like a clear history that people are going to want this, that they've, you know, you've got volume 12 doing well on the stands, people are looking for volume 1, you don't have it. Like and, and it's interesting, there's definitely a hunger and a demand for the stuff out there. Uh, from retailers and from obviously from the consumers who are bugging the retailers. And, and but it's, it's very interesting also that when DC published a a collection, uh, basically a bibliographic listing of its of its book form backlist, it virtually crashed the the uh, uh, the the story. It crashed the PW service. A little story that I thought yeah. was a throwaway. Right. Um, it's useful. People want. I it. put it up there, and it was in our top. Five on PW for like two weeks. Yeah, uh, we got a storm of people from Reddit. Mm-hmm. So the, the the it's clear the demand for backlist among comics fans is out there. They yeah. want to be able you to know, go back and get there this was, stuff. I, I peruse Amazon's bestseller list every night, uh, and because you can have it on a feed, and you know I'm pretty used to what's going to be on there. But all of a sudden, Bliss Black Widow, Name of the Rose book started showing up, and it was the Kindle edition. And I asked around, like, why is this all uh, been on there for a week? Like they'd put it on sale for two dollars. All right, so good deal. But also, people have been talking about a Black Widow movie, and this is possibly what it might be based on. So, and guess what? The book is long out of print. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really feel like for all that it's uh, bizarre. For all that Marvel was from the beginning, like, oh yes, we don't want to drive people away from retailers. We don't want to drive them off to digital. We like digital, but that they are intentionally or unintentionally with their back stock philosophy driving people to digital because they cannot get it anywhere else. Yes. Yeah. Well, supposedly Marvel's starting its own digital. Uh, <laughs> well, they already had that. They're not starting yeah. that. That's been yeah, but they're years. yeah, but they're doing a, a lot more. Supposedly they're doing some announcement at South by Southwest oh, right. this weekend, yes, and so which I won't be at this year. So yeah, we'll just move on so, from that. Topic. All right, let's just go on. Let's move yeah. on to uh, yeah. speaking of digital, Osamu yes. Tezuka. Yes, 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 yes. So this is a really interesting development for a couple of reasons. Of course, uh, most prominently that 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 uh, digital manga uh, and their uh, CEO um, Hikaru Sasahara, Sasahara 
is bringing back uh, bringing what two hundred and fifty different something like that series slash uh, titles. Basically, uh, Osama has a vast backs yeah. list that you just never see in the United States, yeah. and um, digital manga. Productions? Is that what the piece uh, is called? They call it, you know, they changed it. But I think they call them Digital Manga Inc. now. Yeah. Uh-huh. They used anyway. to be Digital Manga Publishing. They seem to have, like, adjusted their uh, their corporate name. And yet but they're yes. still DMP. But they, um, he's got a huge, huge, huge He's got an enormous list, yes. backlist. And, I mean, digital is maybe the way to go about that uh, in the United States. And they're doing it. But the other side of it that is very uh, interesting is that this is driven by the Digital Manga Guild. The, it's this new way to, to license and translate manga that a lot of people in the business were laughing at uh, mm-hmm. when it was launched two or three years ago. Uh, now, according to Sasahara uh, and our reporter, Bridget Alverson, who, uh, by the way, you can read her story at publishersweekly.com slash comics, um, uh, they've published about over 450 titles since the Digital Manga Guild platform was launched, according to Sasahara. Um, now, a lot of people kind of laughed at it, said, oh, the manga wasn't any good. But this does seem to be working. Well, and it seems one like of, one of the key elements is that Tezuka Productions love the business model that Sasahara was offering. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think maybe this is what the kind of thing they were hoping for all along when they created the Digital Manga Guild is they'd start with the lesser licenses that they could get their hands on and hope that they could lure in build somebody. A track to, right. To do. And, and, and I think a lot. They, oh, that'd be, oh, go ahead. Okay, well, sorry. one advantage of the Digital Man Guild is that now that they've built it, they have this vast breadth, the first number of translators they can yes. get it they out. They have too an infrastructure quickly. that's but, sitting, yes. standing by, standing yeah. by, so they can, you know, hand out and, these and, vast. Yeah. And, well, just for those people who quick. may not know exactly what Digital Man Guild is, basically, it's an effort to recruit, in many cases, former scanlators, but new translators to the business. They train them. Everyone takes a cut. The uh, everyone gets a cut, but no money in advance. Right, and you everybody's paid on the back end. So the, the the problem originally is that the licensing fees for manga was so high that it limited what you could do, and the the risk was all on the publisher. What they're doing now is a model that shares the risk between the three parties: the translator, the the publisher, and the original licensor. Yeah. Uh, Tezuka Productions was very excited to be a well, part I of this. Well, I think that's really what the the main thing about this entire move is: is that Tezuka Productions is its own thing. They do not fear digital. Yes. As yeah. many living creators do. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, they're they're trying to get. I mean, you know, Tezuka is considered very old fashioned and. Um, you know, he's a classic in, in Japan. So they're eager to get his work out there in any way well, they can. I mean, so that's I, I, why they're they're eager well, to embrace this. I think they're smart enough to realize they have nothing to lose. Right, yeah. exactly. That it's exactly. not like there's a print version they're going to be conflicting with. Exactly. They might as well get it out there however they can. Exactly. And uh, the other thing that I also find interesting is, is that Sasahara, and this can be very difficult for Japanese properties, is actively pitching this uh, for film and, and movie TV uh, adaptation. Now, uh, I don't know a lot about it, but I do understand that moving Japanese rights to American creators is often a very tricky proposition because the IP laws are very different in how the Japanese see it and how the Americans see it. So this also seems to be a very interesting new development for the future production yeah. uh, in TV and yeah. film of you know Tezuka pro- uh, right. Uh, right. Uh, properties. Well, so. it just shows that digital backlist is backlist. Without a doubt. And uh, speaking of digital movies, of- Manga moving from country to country. Uh, Viz is moving into the Indian market officially. Yes, and it's just the first time Viz manga have been available in the Indian market legally. 
Right. There's been a gray market. Where, where basically it's been imports. from Because there's yeah. a high uh, level of English as a second Absolutely. language in India. There's been there's a, a huge English language market. There's Domestic a huge, there's English, a huge language English, language English language market in India. And so people have been you know getting their English manga secondhand from the English-speaking world. But now there will be manga specifically marketed to and sold to and licensed in India. Yeah. Um, they've got 75 titles from Shueisha that are slated to come out. They're saying they're going with fan favorites, including Blue Exorcist and Death Note. And they already have contracts with um, three of India's major booksellers, uh, Flipkart, Landmark, and Crossword. And, and there, there are many others. They, yeah, that's but yeah, one but I mean, those they, they've already got. Like, and and for those one. who may not know, I mean, uh, uh, this, uh, this is is owned by two major Japanese uh, publishing Shueisha houses and Shugaku, and Shugaku Khan. Yeah. They're starting with the Shueisha side, and they, they hope to eventually. Oh, they will eventually uh, distribute the entire catalog. Um, um, yeah, but I, I, you know, I think if you you look up emerging market in the dictionary, there is a picture of India next to it uh, for <laughs> comics. Everybody really wants to get in there with their billion, uh, you know, population and, and English yeah. language population, and so far so good. Very enthusiastic. Distribution is the biggest problem in India. Um, they don't really have a retail. Uh, there's a lot of piracy. There's a lot of. You know, a lot of trouble collecting money sometimes up and down the chain. Mm. But, uh, you know, why not? Again, why not give it a shot? Well, what have you got to lose? Well, one thing that uh, I was reading the article on Publishers Weekly. Come to our That's publishersweekly.com slash comics. Yes. Um, that they were saying that actually the uh, Indian market for manga is very similar to the American market yeah. for, for manga and that the... Um, so they have a model they can work off of. And that there are three really large Comic-Cons, American-style Comic-Cons, now going and on growing in, in India, which made them realize how large the market yeah. was. Thirty to 50,000 fans attending. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so um, they're looking for fast growth in India, and I, I'm sure they're going to uh, get why it. Why shouldn't they? Yeah, no, I'm sure they're going to get it. So, And there there's apparently is a, an internal Indian manga scene. But it's not very popular. <laughs> the well, we've, bias we've for been Japanese there. manga. Yeah, exactly. People want Japanese manga, if that isn't redundant to say that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Manga moves on. Manga grows. <laughs> Maybe, hopefully in the U.S. too, but uh, it's certainly growing in the rest of the world. Yeah, we may be what's called a mature market. Let's hope not. Okay, so next thing on the list. Uh, let's see. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot of the trailer was released. Uh, you know, moving on to the showbiz part of our podcast. Yes, movies. Uh, the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy was released. Um, you know, now I'm lost track of time. I guess oh. it was early last week, right? Yeah, yeah it's, yes, it's right after Toy yeah. Fair. That's and right. you and know, created a sensation. Yeah. It's kind of well, cool. Well, yeah. And to give some background, Guardians of the Galaxy is obscure even to diehard comic fans. I'll um, go along with that. <laughs> even. Um, and not only that, the, the version of Guardians of the Galaxy, which is going to be in the movie, was only started in 2008. Mm, yeah, so even somebody who knew the 70s version is going to be a little at sea. And so there was a lot of discussion when Marvel announced that they were definitely going with Guardians of the Galaxy movie as to whether this was, you know, crazy, uh, whether they could sell it. Um, which makes it very interesting that 
the reaction I've heard from non-comic book people to the Guardians of the Galaxy trailer, I mean, the negative response, the positive response is, I want to see that. The negative response is, and I quote my father on this one, but I've seen it in papers, is, this looks like it was made by a bunch of marketers. Mm-hmm. Really <laughs> interesting. interesting. Whereas, meanwhile, you know, the comics perspective is, this is so obscure and nerdy, who would ever watch it? Right. Okay, us, but really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's fascinating. I I hadn't actually heard that that yeah, from that, uh, non people, from well, civilian c- reaction. So civilian reaction was was like, well, it's got a team, kind of like Avengers, but it's in space and it's got a fuzzy animal, so people will buy toys. Right. Well, but uh, it's the genius of Marvel, <laughs> Disney, and Kevin Feige, man. Uh, you know. Rocket raccoon and a talking tree. So, uh, you know, they've been really rolling this out very cleverly, though. They're holding off on us seeing... I mean, they're just releasing Rocket Raccoon. They know that this is a winner. And uh, and his talking tree companion, who will be voiced by <laughs> Vin Diesel. But Groot, the talking tree, all he says is, I am Groot. But he does say it in a wide array of expressive right. tones of voice. Right. Just like Hodor <laughs> on Game of Thrones, yeah. if you're not familiar with, with Hodor. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, but they're holding off on that big reveal. This movie opens August 1st. Well, I mean, so he... They were in the trailer, so I don't know how you're holding. Yeah, but they're not talking. They're not not talking. talking. We haven't heard I am Groot yet. I mean, my guess would be that they're holding off because they haven't put that through post production yet. Well, that's probably actually true. So, Uh, but you know, I mean, I'm sure they could get Vin Diesel to say I am Groot once or twice. If you really wanted to. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Yeah, but I mean, one of the other things that came up because of Guardians of the Galaxy was the situation of uh, original creator of Rocket Raccoon, uh, or oh, co-creator, yeah. was Bill Mantlo, yeah. along with Keith Giffen. Uh, another character, I believe, first pr- appeared in a obscure issue of Marvel Presents, and then he had his own miniseries, which is drawn by a very young Mike Mignola. So that issue's always been something of a collector's item, so to speak. Uh, but uh, Mantlo, as some may know, uh, retired from comics in the late 80s and then suffered a tragic accident in the early 90s where he was struck by a car and suffered irreversible brain damage. So he's been living in assisted living ever since. And um, Marvel, there was, a, there was a really heartbreaking story about him written online or in a magazine a few years ago just about how his family had struggled with insurance claims to take care of him and um, I mean, I said, you know, he's a father of two, and you know, I think his, his he really, was married, really but the marriage did story. not survive yeah. the injury, and uh, just you know, the family yeah. difficulty they've had. You know, a lot of people have been, why doesn't Marvel do? Marvel should do something about this, and uh, you know, donate some money to Bill Mantlo if you like Rocket Raccoon, donate some money to Bill Mantlo. And his brother has been going around on several websites talking about how. Um, well, it's two things, interestingly. Like, I, I mean, I don't think anybody's really said there's been a to boycott this because of Bill Mantlo. No. Uh, but he, and he's saying certainly no one should do that because this is really the best thing to happen to him in a long time. Uh, yeah. And he's really enjoying, to the extent that he can, seeing this happen. Mm. And it means a lot, to, certainly to the family, to see Mantlo, Bill Mantlo bought up so many times. And, and uh, his brother Mike also dropped a little bit that Marvel hasn't entirely, like, there is a uh, compensation program in place for when people's uh, characters are used in movies but it's all under a a non-disclosure agreement so nobody's really going to come out and say i made this much money but apparently it is in place and um you know we talk so much you've mentioned this before haven't you yeah Mm -hmm. yes i have and i I, marvel seems to have they have something and it seems Mm -hmm. to be from what i've seen it seems to be a substantial amount of money i mean it's more than like ten thousand twenty thousand dollars i mean it's definitely a somewhat substantial amount of money that people are 
it's enough to keep them quiet <laughs> in other words you know and i think that's good yeah. i think that we we should we so many times I talk agree. about all the horrible things that have happened to comics creators over the years. So and it's good when someone's stepping up. And yes, exactly. Yes. And kick the, right. the publishers in the shins. So if they are doing something. Right. And I, I you know, like we can't really know because we don't know how much money yeah. it is. And, you know, we're just judging by the effects that we see. But uh, I think I brought this up before that Jim Starlin, who created Thanos, the character who is being used as the villain in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, as well as the villain apparently in the next Avengers movie. Uh, and Starlin absolutely created this character well before he went to Disney. He has the sketches of him in his high school yearbook and everything. So he has an incredibly good ownership claim uh, on that basis. And he's still working for Marvel and still doing uh, books about Thanos. So, uh, but, you know, this is not a zero-sum game. This no. is a game where there's nuances. And as long as Jim Starlin is happy, I'm happy. But if you see this movie... Or read the comic and decide that you really like Racket Raccoon. It would be really nice if you, yes. you know, threw a couple yeah. bucks Bill Mantlow's way. Without a yes. doubt. Yes. yes. Without exactly. a doubt. Exactly. All right. Uh, the other movie that we were talking about here, the Fantastic Four yes. and the casting of the new one. Very uh, interesting. Yes, very interesting. Um, uh, certainly the whole cast, frankly, but certainly the one, the, the uh, uh, Michael Jordan being cast as Johnny Storm seemed to certainly... What what do comics fans love to do but argue about the casting of the movies? Well, well although the, 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 some of the discussion I saw around Michael B. Jordan, uh, let's just say, was a little bizarre. Well, I mean, yes, he's black. Yes, he's black. Although they did cast someone white as his sister, although it is something that could be, I'm you sure know, they can massage. The well, <laughs> did you know that people different races Absol- can actually be related? It yeah. happens all the time. It's, it's happens true. Happens all the time. And it's you know true. what? It can happen even easier in, in a comic book movie. It's true. <laughs> um, although, to give a little backstory, um, they did not cast entirely white in the last Fantastic yeah. Four. Uh, they cast Jessica Alba, and then they put her in a hell of a lot of makeup to make her look whiter, <laughs> which yeah. was very disconcerting. Yeah, um, it was a little odd. Well, you know, the the fun. first Fantastic Four franchise was based on the original concept of it, in which uh, Sue Storm was really this, uh, you know, bombshell ingenue, which certainly is Jessica Alba, but uh, I, and she's of mixed heritage. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but, but the, everybody else was cast so to type. I mean, you, yeah. I don't understand. Listen, I don't understand how people are so upset about Michael B. Jordan as Human Torch when they cast Billy Elliot as the thing, okay? I, well, I, I need, agree. I don't think well, I, I Billy Elliot. This is a kid. The, 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 the actor who played Billy Elliot is going to play Ben Grimm. And this is not, I mean, this is not well, a I, big, all I can say is guy. He's yeah, his I, little I, self. He dances beautifully in the ballet. Uh, all I can think. I don't quite get it either. All, I mean, I, I am, in fact, a fan of that actor. But I agree I that it's too, weird casting. Uh, all I can think is that a they're probably not going to show him pre-transformation, and b boy, there's going to be a hell of a lot of CGI. Well, of costumes. you know what? Listen, <laughs> let's just so. back up a minute and point out this is based on the Ultimate Fantastic Four. I see, but but this is in, what they're but in Ultimate ben Fantastic Four, the yeah, things equally the huge Ultimate, and rock- so rocky. Well, when he's in his thing format, I mean, obviously, you know, Michael Chiklis wore a suit. Like, because uh, this is so early in the CGI, so he, I think there was a thing suit, and then it was CGI'd. Yeah. And but for this one, he'll be a hundred percent CGI, so yeah. it doesn't really matter. And the one thing I, now I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the actor, Jamie Jamie something, but uh, he also did CGI for Tintin. He played Tintin. 
Yes. And so he's a veteran CGI uh, expert. So, that's, you know, there you that's go. That's true. So but, it, but I mean, but I mean, part of what makes him an interesting casting role for The Thing is that Ben Grimm, as Ben Grimm before he's The Thing, is a fairly large gentleman to begin with. And then also is usually portrayed as having a very thick New York accent. Yes. And so, and not well, only that, but very like heavy, yeah. loud kind of guy. And also, yeah, Whereas, obviously, that he was even what's, wasn't he also kind of from Yancey Street? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I get the sense that they're basically re really rebooting. Well, either either the whole that, nation. or they're going to expect uh, a hell of a performance from um, the actor to be to yeah, be considerably Miles Teller. I mean, I don't know what else he's. No, done. that's Miles Teller's play. He's playing no, Reed Richards. Yeah, and he is. To me, I don't. He doesn't seem like Reed Richards to me. Yeah, it's ja- Jamie. <laughs> Jamie Bell will be playing. Yeah, um, will be playing. Uh, I mean, and, and now Kate and, Merritt I, sort of looks like you would expect. Yeah, but you know what? The, Storm, the bottom line they're is they're not going to do it. The in bottom that way. line is that the Cold War, outer space, yeah. cosmic rays version of the Fantastic Four is never going to stand the sniff no, test for gotta. a 2015 audience. So they do need to be reinvented. Well, so you know what? If you're going to reinvent them, you might as well make I, I the agree. thing Billy Elliot. I agree. <laughs> and, I, and I even went on Facebook because I was seeing some very bizarre conversations about Yeah, the, Well, there's Michael a lot Jordan. of racism about the, it. Absolutely. The, the, pure the, racism. The and race I said, look, treatment of it was the weirdest. I said, look, I was shocked when I first read it. And I'm black. But mm-hmm. you know what? I'm getting used to the idea with every passing second. So <laughs> that some of the stuff that I'm seeing out there is just you know pretty despicable, frankly. Yeah. Although I have to say, I would not have minded if there was you know just for variety's sake also a black Sue Storm because hey, why not? Hey, I agree. Do it. Go for it. Because yeah, at the end of the day, these these classic properties they've got to be redone in some kind of way to make them last for another eight right. years. The, the, <laughs> the only thing is just you hope. That whatever it was that made it good will survive the yeah. transition. Yeah. So we but shall I, see. You know, that said. And that'll be interesting the, to see. Well, the, yes. And, and, and Fantastic and, Force represents a very particular time in the development of absolutely, superheroes. Absolutely. And, and so yes, we'll that see. said, the whole, you know, let's go into outer space. Oh, we, we don't know about the cosmic rays. Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work. But, you know, the, the idea of the scientist and his rough and tumble friend and his beautiful invisible girlfriend and her hot-tempered brother, I mean, these are pretty that strong. Can be made to these work. are really strong relationships. Absolutely. And the Fantastic Four also represents something. In some ways, it was way ahead of its time because it actually kind of represented superheroes as celebrities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These superheroes that yeah. didn't have secret identities. Right. So in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's right here in our time in how you can treat this property right. to, right. Uh, today. So. Right. We shall see. More to come on that for sure. And let's segue very sophisticatedly to news briefs. Yes. Uh, speaking of classic comics, it is Will Eisner Week soon. Coming up, yes. The Will and Ann Eisner Family Foundation for the sixth year is uh, encouraging a series of comic events in memory of Will Eisner and his contributions to comics of the week of March 6th, which is, say, the week of his birthday. So from March 1st through 7th, they will have in a wide number of cities and towns uh, a variety of comic events. So if you go to www.willeisner.com, you may find that there is a Eisner event near you. Yeah, which reminds me, I have to write the story because they, they, the Eisner Foundation has sent me a package. So I have to sit up and I have to get that story up. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, that would be an interesting yes. story And there are events read. all around the country, too, actually, So if not the world. And um, speaking about comics in the world, the State Department 
sponsored and ran a web chat on the topic of superheroes. Yes, yeah. Uh, actually, it's terrific. It was um, uh, basically, uh, I think it was called Superheroes at State. And yes. it's a live, uh, was a live web chat. It's actually archived uh, on, the, on the site. And um, it included David Glanzer from um, Comic-Con International. Uh, and, uh, and, I'm, and I apologize, I'm forgetting his name, the creator of the 99. Yeah. Um, rem- and he was uh, remotely in Kuwait. Uh, so they really kind of talked about how superheroes uh, really have impacted cultures around the world. So I didn't. Wa- I wasn't able to watch all of it, but I did. Were able to see a little. See a little bit of it. Uh, it was very interesting to see uh, David Glance. You don't see David. You know, you see David right. in San Diego. You know, so it was good, funny to see him on TV. Oh, it wasn't TV, but see him. You know, yeah. um, video projected. Uh, but I, I thought it was fascinating that the State Department. Yeah, I'm not really yeah, sure what, really what got the State Department going on this. Well, you know, but I don't know. Maybe there's a lot more going on here than we know. Maybe the State Department is interested in, you know, maybe these Comic Cons are really fronts for the NSA <laughs> or something. Maybe they're going to snoop into or, our. Or collection. maybe they've decided, like Japan's government, that comics are. Prime source of American soft power, and they're going to uh, promote superhero well, a, diplomacy. There's a long history history of uh, back of the CIA funding cultural events, uh, uh, supporting abstract uh, expressionism in the 1950s, That's right. uh, even supporting the Paris Review uh, in order to present American culture. And, and did you know as that the uh, antipathy of Communist yeah. culture. Well, yeah, and and uh, ping pong turned out to be a communist front. <laughs> yeah, well, right. there you go, and they still rule in it. So there you go. Uh, in any event, um, uh, you know what? I don't have the the link in front of me, but uh, if you Google superheroes at state, uh, you'll come up with the link, and it is archived there. And I would say uh, check it out. And our final news for the day is sad. Diamond Digital has gone down. It is going dark <laughs> on on February 28th. But don't worry if you're one of the very, very, very few people who decided to buy digital comics through your comic store through Diamond Digital because you can still get all those comics through Iverse. And they promise <laughs> that if you are... And you won't have to buy them again. Uh, and if you are one of those few retailers who actually made money on it and they haven't paid you yet, they promise they're going to pay you. Um, so don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't Brian Hip say he made thirty dollars? He did on say it? that. Yeah. But then he said that later on he would be busy selling copies of Diamond previews through it. That was really the only thing he ever ever sold through it, and that became somewhat. Uh, significant, but by then mm. it was too late. Yeah. So right. um, well, th- we hardly knew you. I mean, the the, the thing. It just was. It, they just didn't do it very right. well. Well, as I said, as I said in my piece that I wrote this morning, uh, it was based out of fear. I mean, oh, back yes. in the days, You're right. back in the days when retailers thought that digital commerce were going to put them out of business, uh, which they eventually will, but it's going to be very slow. Um, uh, they feared digital so much that Diamond said, "Well, look, maybe you can, you know, here's a way that you could sell them. So instead of, you know, we can neutralize the threat by having you sell these comics. So, so basically, anytime you're starting out with a business plan that's neutralizing a threat, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to, you know, delivering like, goods like to it, a, yeah. you know, emboldening a actual revenue channel, um, probably not going to work as well. Because you couldn't really buy the digital comics. You could buy downloads that you had to either go to the store to get." Right. And bring home, or you could download them. It, it was a bad idea. Yeah. 
And then, of course, <laughs> midway, you know, think about a year into it, they laid off most of the, the executive staff yep. and kind of started all over again. And it just, uh, and then, of course, by then, you know, comicsology was gone. It was, I mean, it was taking off. And right. it was just, yeah. yeah. So, so, anyway, but another, another digital platform goes by the wayside. Uh, well, digital um, Darwinism. Yeah, because yeah, there's well. been so many we've reported on over the years, you know? From- that's true. We have actually, yeah. Um, yeah. Long box. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, I mean, I think like a lot of them don't have a clear vision for why customers would want to use them instead of somebody else. Right. That's right. And you really do need to stake out your corner of the marketplace and explain to people why they would actually want it. Right. Which, which uh, Diamond Digital was not so great at. Right. That's right. Well, it was pretty early on, and they just didn't get it. And once again, like you were saying, they were they were they were devised as a way to protect bookstores, or rather, comic stores, not as a way to get comics in the hands of readers as fast as and as, as conveniently as possible. And so, as we close the chapter on Diamond Digital, we so also close the chapter of this episode of More to Come. Probably about time. But there is more to come. <laughs>